The startup game has changed and only the most agile will make it to the other side. I'm your host, Michael Martocci, founder and CEO of SwagUp, and this is Out of the Woods, a show where we interview top startup founders, executives, and investors to hear how they're navigating the rapidly changing economic environment. We'll share real-time insights, strategies, and stories from those in the trenches with the goal to help as many teams level up their execution and make it out of the woods. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Alrighty, welcome back to the Out of the Woods podcast. Super excited about this. Another Swag Up customer, actually. I don't know if you know this, but yes. um, <laughs> Harry Raghavan from Abstract Ops. Um, also, you know, I saw a Twitter thread recently that was like, what's your favorite product or what's the most like magical product out there right now? Abstract Ops, Abstract Ops. <laughs> I saw you guys mentioned like so many times. So it's, I'm excited to, to jump into this and learn more about what exactly you guys are up to. But, but first off... Um, you know, we share this Miami, Miami uh, passion, I guess, in some way. There's, you know, there's a bunch of us here that have, that have come down from all these different cities, you know, San Francisco, New York, um, L.A., et cetera. Um, you know, wh- why did you make the move? Like, what, what, what's so appealing about Miami versus some of the other you know, cities right now? Yeah. I mean, uh, moved here about eight months ago. Uh, part of that uh, uh, somewhat cliched uh, uh, cross-country migration. Uh, no, it's, it's been terrific, uh, honestly, uh, was wasn't entirely sure what to expect. Um, had only visited for like a week at a time before, and uh, uh, it's been great. I think more than moving to Miami specifically, I think we were just leaving San Francisco, and it's like I have a great deal of affection for the city, but I've kind of I've been saddened by missed opportunities. Right, like uh, it's it's been part of some of the greatest economic flourishing that we've seen in the last like 20 or 30 years and instead of taking those resources and putting it back into the city and the ecosystem and making the infrastructure thrive and and setting up better public services and social services we've just seen it kind of decay over the last few decades um and uh i wish i was the kind of person that was like a community organizer that like wanted to fight for it and help fix it but that's just not my gary tan right yeah no it's so much respect for like for, for them and, and, and for Gary and for, uh, you know, Michelle and a lot of other people that are like speaking out about it. It's just, I mean, that's not my calling, right? I'm not a local, I'm not a San Franciscan by nature. I spent most of my formative years in Chicago and felt a lot more affinity to the Midwest anyway. And um, I just, you know, it was just a, I, I was just sad to see that like more hadn't been made of the resources the city had to work with. Um, and, uh, you know, Miami has been largely great. I think um, there are a couple of cheat codes the area has. It's I mean, the weather, it's just like impossible not to feel happy here. I need less sleep, which is kind of weird. Just like I wake up in the morning more energized. Are you an eight sleep uh, disciple? I feel like everybody in tech that comes to Miami has to get an eight sleep. I, I haven't, um, the price tag, I haven't pulled a pr- trigger because of the price tag yet, but I, I've been tempted. We got, we got to introduce you to Mateo. He's down here. Yeah. We'll, he'll hook you up with a discount. Sounds great. What, so what do you think? I mean, you know, a lot of people say, you know, San Francisco did X, Y, and Z, but you know, what, what would you have done better? Like, what do you think, where do you think they really failed or, or missed the mark and where could capital be reallocated should they have embraced tech more should they have done something about homelessness like where where do you think was the kind of the tipping point where it all went wrong and, and what would you have done differently yeah I'm, I'm gonna start by caveating like I'm, I'm commenting for the cheap seats I've never been in politics I've never set policy right I'm certainly not an expert on it um, but but I think one philosophy at least that I can I can share that I think holds up pretty well is is anything to its extreme is bad everything in moderation generally tends to be better. And I think San Francisco wholeheartedly embraced progressivism in its most extreme format. And it's a great experiment to run, but when these, like, but that requires you to kind of follow an experimental process. Like, oh, is this working? If it's not working, let's try something else. 
And when things didn't work, when you invest in a certain initiative and you measure the outcomes that are not directionally what you're, what you're trying to get to, then you should throw it away, not double down or triple down or quadruple down. And so, um, I would say, um, for example, right, like the, the, um, the, uh, gross receipts tax on payroll literally cost businesses to leave and lost jobs in the city. And they've, I think, expanded the scope of that and added like more layers to it. Right. And this is something that, uh, it's, it's ironic, but like, I've actually become more libertarian as I've helped companies, uh, like as abstract ops, right. Like we, like I've, I've seen firsthand the, the, um, drag on productivity and effectiveness that additional regulation can cause on companies. Right. Like it's, it's, it's basically like in order to do the most basic thing, I mean, it's, it's, you have to file 17 forms. Right. And, and it doesn't make any, like, it doesn't add any value in the world to have to do that. And so I think San Francisco and many other hyper-progressivist like environments actually embraced a lot of those things and didn't take a hard look as to whether each of those individual policies worked. I'm, I'm a supporter of many of the things that happened there, but like some of them, like they just really didn't take a hard look at policies that weren't working. Do you think some of the politicians there, they just, they just don't know how the world works and some of the repercussions of some of these decisions, or do you think they're trying to buy votes and do things that on the surface seem like you know, progressive and good moves for the state or the, or the city, but they just, you know, they're not really, but they understand it. Or you just think they don't actually understand the repercussions. It's probably a mix. Um, I, I can certainly say that like some of the rhetoric online, um, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, the far right, I mean, there's this joke, right? It's like a horseshoe, the far right and the far left end up looking a lot like each other. Right. And, and I, it almost feels fanatical, right? It's like this, this, it's like they have a religion, about how policy should be set and nothing can possibly be switched. That's very dogmatic. It's very dogmatic. You can't talk to people uh, who have that belief. And I think a large percentage of people actually just genuinely, like, I think their very identity is built around their set of beliefs and it cannot be shaken. For sure. I think the other thing too about Miami that's interesting is, you know, when you talk about like hyper progressiveness, it kind of leans almost into socialism to a way. Mm -hmm. And the people in Miami, many of them come from Latin American countries that, you know, have seen it and seen the experiment, seen it not work. And they want nothing to do with anything that looks or resembles it. And I I think it creates a much more kind of libertarian type of culture down here of people that kind of, you know, shy away from that. I think that's, you know, it also, it's a very diverse culture, but it's also people that kind of share that same common belief. And I think the types of people that came to Florida and Miami over the last year, they all kind of share that, you know, ideology of like, Hey, we want less involvement from government. We want a society that allows people to make choices that are, that are best for them. And, and also pro business. I mean, this was the first state that was really opening up economic activity and, and businesses when, when others were kind of, you know, pushing yeah. down. So it's been, I mean, it's and, been a pretty it, welcoming place. Yeah. And I'd say rather than even like the political view, right. I think, I think my bias is towards speed. Right. And uh, I mean, Patrick Collison has this great, like, you know, uh, page, which is like just patrickcollison.com slash fast. The Empire, the Empire State yeah. Building was built in like 300 days or something. Days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and it's remarkable that like we used to do that. And it's just entirely like all over the country. It's just gotten sclerotic where, I mean, the, the I mean, the, the, the punchline at the bottom of that is, is the Van Ness bus lanes in San Francisco took, was done at a cost of $100,000 per meter. It's a bus lane. It's not even a new road. It's just a lane on an existing road. It's like $100,000 per meter. And he compares that to like the Alaskan like roadway, which I think was like a few thousand dollars a mile, right? And and it, it, like I basically I think anything that gets in the way of you know and, and like it's not just building, but again like experimenting, iterating, moving fast. That's what drives humanity forward. 
right? And of course, you have to be mindful of externalities, right? Like, you know, climate change being a result of like moving a little too fast on like, you know, emissions. I mean, you have you do have to be mindful of some things and some things are like, you know, I don't know, civilization ending that you probably should, like, maybe don't move that fast on like nuclear, uh, like uh, nuclear weapons, right? Specifically, like we did during the 50s, like 40s and 50s. But I mean, aside from that, I think most things, it's just progress is good. Moving forward, moving faster is good. I, I just believe that. And I think everything, all of my like political beliefs kind of stem from that. I was going to say, I mean, it sounds like maybe that's almost like a central theme or core belief that you have. It's just that speed and elimination of friction because, I mean, at, at its core, abstract ops is all about like how do you enable kind of the speed and, and frictionless experience of running a company and getting to focus on some of the more Im- important things. Is that is that a fair statement to say? Yeah, that is. I mean, honestly, um, <laughs> um, the, the, the genesis for I think many, what most like founders end up starting companies to do is they look at a situation which makes them want to bang their head on the table. And you're like, this is not how it should work. This yeah. should be easier, right? And just like eliminating friction in some format. I mean, you're doing the same thing with like, you know, Slack. It's like being able to create better bonding and, and shared like identity with people should be more frictionless, right? And so, yeah, certainly for us, I think it is, I mean, whatever we think of how we got here, I mean, HR, finance, legal are like just heavily, heavily regulated. And there's a lot of friction around what those things have to do. But the good part is they're very rules-based. So you can be very programmatic about solving it, right? And so what we're trying to do is to put a lot more things on autopilot, right? And we're, we, we've solved different pieces of it. By the way, each individually as good or as well as, um, as uh, the, the specialized tool in that particular function. So, you know, document issuance, contract management and signatures is something we've built. State registrations and local compliance is something we've built. Uh, employee onboarding is something we've built. And so we're still a little bit defining our identity around like, well, which of those things really defines us? What is the crux of what we are? And there are a few areas where we're zeroing in around, which is like, how do you remove friction and kind of like, but but in other words, reduce risk, right? That would be introduced if you were like, don't be sloppy, right? If you get sloppy, you introduce risk. Like, as we talked about, you do have to be mindful of externalities. People get hurt, right? Vendors don't get paid, they get pissed off. Investors don't get updates, they get pissed off. Like, don't piss off people, right? So how do you actually move fast without even having to think about this stuff? Just put it on autopilot, right? And we're still figuring out like, what is the, the, the nexus of those things that's like the most valuable pain point. And that's, I think, that journey to product market fit, which I'll be totally honest, we're still figuring out our way to get there. Uh, but uh, we build really powerful things, really valuable things. We just have to now package them up in a way that like people read five words and go, I want that. So. Yep. How, how much of this How much of this was kind of inspired by your time at Forge Global and BCG? It looks like at Forge, like you basically did everything. You, you were <laughs> overseeing product and revenue and, and go to market and ops. And, you know, you kind of saw every side of the business. Was that a big kind of, you know, experience kind of point for you to understand, like, what do we need to build here? Yeah, I, th- I think a little bit. Um, I mean, so going back to consulting, right? Basically, the entire premise underlying most management consulting firms is you take best practices from one company and, copy, and you copy paste them to others, right? And then yeah. coming to like a startup, you're like, there are no best practices, right? Or, or at least... Everyone reinvents the wheel a lot. And for some things, that's actually good, right? Like you should reinvent the wheel when it comes to your R&D. That's your actual IP, right? You should at least revisit or, or work off of frameworks, but still like think really deeply and reinvent your go-to-market strategy, right? But it doesn't feel like you should reinvent HR, finance, and legal. Again, like if you're innovating in HR, you're probably doing something wrong, right? <laughs> um, uh, and, and so... But but when I was at Forge, um, yeah. To be clear, I wasn't over. I wasn't overseeing all of that. I oversaw most of the operational and like kind of like go to market and partnership and those kinds of functions. But I was uh, an active contributor and kind of like a 
uh, a voice in the room on product strategy and things and, and legal and things like that as well. But I mean, yeah, I, I noticed that, you know, half of our CEO's time, two thirds of our chief of staff's time, a third of my time was spent on things that felt like they should be automated, right? Insurance applications, uh, sending and managing like offer letters and employment agreements, right? Like bookkeeping and accounting and compliance. Like those are the things that like just suck up a lot of time. They have to be done. If you don't do them, you get hit with fines. You, you know, introduce liability. You get pissed off employees. And and founders like expensive. usually don't care about any of these things, but right. they need to happen. Yeah, exactly. And, and they shouldn't, right? They like, that's not why they got into this business, right? Uh, but yeah, to your point, it's like, like it's required to like keep a business alive. It's like, um, one joke is like, I mean, it's like having a company is like having a baby. Like you, th- there's this thing that you have to like keep alive, right? You, you know, like, you know, feeding and changing a baby is not why you got a baby, but you still kind of have to, you've got the baby for the smiles and the, the yeah. good, like the good vibes and everything else. Right. But like, uh, same kind of metaphor here, right? It's like, you, you gotta, you gotta, uh, keep it alive and you gotta keep it functioning and well-oiled. Yeah. And it's hard to justify some of these expenses sometimes as an as a up and coming company. Like you're not going to dedicate full time headcount to, you know, legal and then HR yeah. and finance back office. So there's been, you know, lots of different types of solutions. So, I mean, you're kind of taking the approach of let's give superpowers to maybe less people at a company so that they can handle a lot more. But, but it also seems like, you know, you added maybe a service line on or maybe been more of a service business in the beginning. You know, how do you think about kind of the intersection of people and technology to solve this problem? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great point. I mean, yeah, we, we actually, for the first uh, year, year and a half of the company's life, almost exclusively provided services. We were we knew the product would take some time to build. It was a very like broad, wide-ranging product, as I've kind of touched on. And uh, we knew that you know we could solve this problem really effectively by taking trained, smart people and having them solve the problems on a fractional basis for a larger number of companies. To your point, you can't justify full-time headcount. That's how you do it. Um, the, the challenge that we ran into, and so we recently actually spun out the services business as a standalone company, uh, which our CEO Adam is going to be running going forward. And w- the reason we did that is because um, services are a very uh, seductive business, right? Uh, it's very high uh, ARR and ACV, right? It is something that if you if you can price it at a, even a reasonable margin, people will actually line up to buy. They will sell like hotcakes because to your point, like it's, it's cheaper than hiring a full-time person to do it. And you got to train the person and manage the person and over like, you know, there's all of this like overhead, but being able to have like, a firm that just says, I like, we, we just specialize in this. This is all we do. And we know this like inside and out is something that everyone finds really compelling. And so what ends up happening is the service revenue ends up doing this. And suddenly your identity as a company and your majority of your revenue and everything else ends up being like much more services. So it, it is, it is a very compelling solution to a customer. It is very feasible to implement as a provider, but it ends up like it, it like product always takes longer to build and take root and provide value. Whereas a human can be flexible. And so we ended up like with, with a little bit of an identity crisis, like are we product or are we services? And so we actually ended up spinning out the services so that we could focus, like we could basically partner with them to provide the services and fill that gap for especially founders, like, you know, at seed stage and pre-seed companies and so on and so forth. Um, so that we could essentially build a product that empowers those operators in the services business, but also standalone operators at like larger companies, like 50, 100, 200 person companies who are looking to automate more of their um did the product kind of start as maybe internal tooling to help the service providers like do the job more scalably and then it kind of just spun out so that the external users can then use it themselves so um we actually did not take that path we didn't take the path of internal tooling because the kind of internal tooling you would build for a fractional team is very different than what you would build for a an end customer right we wanted to focus on building things that only end like that end customers want first and foremost and then internal users 
could use as well rather than the other way around. <clears throat> and, and the reason is because, for example, right, you would, as, as, a, um, as a fractional operator, you might want aggregate task lists that span multiple customers and being able to like context switch easily. That's not something that, you know, a singular head of HR, they're not yeah. trying to context switch across five companies, right? So you would just end up building different things if you, depending on which persona you chose for. So we wanted to build for the end customer first and foremost, and then have the operators also benefit. Gotcha. Makes sense. Well, you know, from a, from a product strategy standpoint, like first off, like what exactly do you, would you say like abstract ops, ops does? And then how much of the vision is around, you know, first party solutions to problems versus just integrating with a large yeah. network of third parties? Like what, what problems do you guys want to solve through proprietary product and technology versus, you know, just, you know, connecting the dots? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Um, so I think anytime we can integrate, it's better to partner than to build, right? Build as little as possible in order to solve the biggest problem possible, right? Um, anytime we can partner, if, if there is an API first solution that is really good, we would rather partner, right? Uh, and integrate. Uh, but we did find a handful of cases where uh, we actually had to go down to the metal and build it from scratch because the existing solutions were either far too expensive or too heavyweight or not flexible enough or not API forward enough and so on. So we ended up building uh, all the way down to the metal on like document management, signatures, e-sign, like contract management, template management, all that stuff. Um, so that was, we went all the way down to the metal on. The other one we've gone all the way down to the metal on is uh, state registrations and local compliance. Um, so we actually handle that end to end for customers. But if I were to uh, say like, well, what does is, what is abstract ops solve for? I, I would say the thing that, so th there, there are two or three parts of the overall offering. Um, that we've built really effectively. One of them is, is again, document issuance and management. The other is kind of like workflows, right? So like a hiring workflow or uh, a um, promotion or uh, like a safe closing, like things like that, that are like multi-step processes that kind of use a few building blocks that we can like stitch together to have a more structured like checklist experience, if you will. But it's still automated, right? You like the It's not just a checklist that you check off, but rather you push a button and it gets taken, right? Um, and then the, the, the third one is around like regulatory interface. Right, which is that state registration piece. All those three we built really well. Now, to your question, it's like, well, what is it Abstract Ops does? I'd say the thing that unifies all of these is, is kind of like a really great people management experience for remote first teams, right? Because if you're not remote first, the state registration thing is not that painful, right? Because you have like two states, one state, whatever, right? Um, if you aren't a remote first team, then your, pay your payroll and employee complexity is like way lower, right? Um, and um, so, we're, we're increasingly gravitating towards this like people solution. So here's a, a really remarkable thing we've seen at a few customers that's fascinating. It's they have employees in four different tools and contract uh, employees and contractors in four different tools, right? They manage some people in uh, Augusto, some people in Deal, some people in Remote.com, some people are paid directly out through Mercury. And it's like, how do we pay this person? Is actually like is something that's held. In I just saw another uh, company come out that founders founder fund just invested in that does like credit cards to locals so that they can spend on it instead yeah. of getting paid or something. It's there's yeah. so many of these types of solutions. Totally. And, and so suddenly you just, and then there's new companies that are like, Oh, you can also get paid in USDC for example. Right. So like you actually end up with this really fascinating, um, like proliferation of SaaS. And, and now the problem is no longer, I need an automated point solution, but I need something to stitch it all together, right? To create a cohesive experience and to have one dashboard where I can look at things, right? But when you talk to execs, when you talk to people whose job it is to like manage that kind of risk, like legal, HR, finance, et cetera, they, that visibility, that, that global visibility and being able to, being told, being flagged, like, hey, here's what's about to break unless you act on it, is wildly. And how much, the, yeah. No, I was gonna say, how much inspiration 
do you get from something you know, a platform like Rippling? You know, I, I know Rippling has a, a big vision around kind of yeah. unifying all these different tools, trying to automate as much workflow as possible. Obviously, a lot on the you know employee side and personnel, but you know it's, it seems like the visions are somewhat aligned in, in a way. Yeah, I, I would say um, so. Uh, the the thing I've come to realize recently is like vision should dictate how you build, but not what you sell, uh, because uh, what you sell again, people just want a solution to the problem they have at hand, right? Even if you want to solve a broader suite of things, even if you want to have a platform approach to something, right? Um, an end customer, an end user just wants to buy the thing that is going to solve their problem that they have that day, right? Um, and so I would say, like, from a, from a vision standpoint, we've actually, um, uh, this is my current understanding outside in. Uh, so funnily enough, I was a, through an SPV, a seed investor in Rippling, which is kind of hilarious. Uh, that was like, well. yeah, that, I mean, it actually was an uncapped note, so it <laughs> converted it like pretty high valuation, but still, still ended up doing okay. Um, but the, um, but, but, but the thing is with, with rippling, I think, uh, my outside in perspective is that, uh, we're both solving analogous to your problem, like slightly overlapping problems maybe. Right. But I think they're still different in that my understanding is we both use the phrase OS for companies, but we use the word, we define the word company different. So, um, rippling uses the word company to mean organization. We use the word company to mean corporation. Right? So an organization is all about its people. So Parker said this publicly, he's like, the building block of a company is its employees. But I would pose the question, well, what about your customers? Are they not a building block? What about your investors? What about regulators? Do they not have a say in how you operate? Obviously they do, right? So I think there are multiple building blocks. There are different stakeholders. And so the way we think about it is like your company has obligations, right? Some of them are financial obligations. Some of them are legal obligations. Some of them are HR and people obligations. And so our, like, we want to try to create an operating system that helps you like codify and just automate every obligation that you put in our model. Yep. So, so, but obviously where the, there's overlap is employees and people, right? And I specifically think that people ends up being one of the biggest forcing functions or buying moments for an OS like this, right? Like, um, I mean, automating legal paperwork will never be as pressing an issue as automating hiring someone, right? Um, because you can scrap it together with DocuSign, Google Docs, and um, so I do think we're ending up gravitating towards like people as a space, as a general topic area. That's one. Another could be financing, right? Like how do you like, so for example, you, you dealt with preferred stock financings and had this mad scramble for like two weeks to like pull together all your paperwork and identify where all the gaps are to generate a disclosure schedule and like, you know, fire drill to be like, oh crap, these three employees didn't sign their CIAs or we didn't register in the state or whatever it is. So that could be another place where we could use the exact same IP that we have around contract issuance and state compliance and employee management and so on to solve a different problem. Um, so I think basically we know we're building the right product because we can solve these two problems and like 20 others as like a freebie, right? So we're keeping moving ball forward on the end product we're building, but we're still finalizing the, the, the what is the position that we're like, what is the one thing that we do, right? Yep. And like, it has to be like five words. What's the, right? what's the magnet kind of? Yeah, it, it has to be like a one-click data room or diligence, legal diligence for a fundraise, or it has to be a people management for remote first teams. Nope. Right? There's a there's a big push, I feel like, just in general of this whole idea of aggregation of workflows and either vertical integration or packaging or bundling of, of things. Like I would say, you know, Stripe Atlas is maybe trying to do some stuff like this. You even have Ramp trying to consolidate the entire, you know, financial backend or financial operations. You have Angelus Stack. Do you, th do you think there's kind of too much SaaS in the world? Like there's too many disparate <laughs> tools? Like what's your take on that? Um, I, I, I think the explosion of the Cambrian explosion of SaaS has resulted in a new class of first world problems, which is I have too many things that make my life easy, right? Yeah. And now I have to like manage them all. So yeah, no, I think you're totally spot on. And I think, um, I don't think it's a problem. I don't think there's too much SaaS in the world because it's still, you know, 
your choice. You can choose to use it or not, right? Um, and I don't think they are addictive the same way that like, you know, social media apps have gotten flack for and so on. But um, I do think it is a problem that people are becoming less efficient because they're acting as human APIs, right? They're logging in and out of five apps and copy pasting things, downloading files, renaming them, emailing, slacking. It's busy work, right? Like we live in the age of actual APIs, like computers and software are better at copy pasting things than humans are. They're less error prone. Um, and so I think what I hope we move more in the direction of, and I think it feels like inter interoperability basically exactly. is where things are going. Like these, yeah. these SaaS tools really just become kind of engines and databases that right. talk to each other. And then the human's job is to glue them together the right way, right? And um, I mean, uh, some people have talked about this. Uh, I think uh, Hacky uh, McCormick might have been one. But um, when are we going to see the first like you know billion dollar company with like five employees? I, I think that's likely because again, there's so much you can just take out of the box and lift and shift and put together what's fit and duct tape. Um, <clears throat> but I do think, um, and that's not even thinking about like AI and its impact yeah, potentially. Totally, totally. Um, yeah, it's just using APIs. Yeah, <laughs> but then like imagine AI plus APIs. It's it's kind of scary in some ways, but uh, also interesting and exciting. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, like potential externalities and potential like civilization ending events, that's one of them right there. Uh, AIs plus APIs uh, um, could be fascinating and, and scary. But um, but I think that the job of humans in a business enterprise in a business endeavor should be to solve higher level problems, right? Like the software should create abstraction layers that increasingly get more and more sophisticated so the human's just making decisions and providing the inputs to actually have the machine. Answer. Yep. I, no, I totally agree. But I think then if you play that out a little bit longer, you know, the, the, the end state of that is there's a lot of very unproductive people in society, you know, because yeah. not everybody is well equipped to start making those types of decisions and, and stitch together the tooling and technology. Like, you know, we don't have to go into like a crazy philosophical kind of yeah. <laughs> debate about it, but what are you concerned about that end state or do you think about it at all? Yeah, I have. And, and um, yes, also, I mean, I think we're already starting to see it happen, right? Like with more automation, with, um, you know, the living wage discussion, I think it's a very important topic for like us. And I don't just mean the U S but like just world, the world at large to solve because it's like progress is inexorable. Right, like it will happen, and we have to figure out how we solve for those externalities. And so, um, I I personally think there should be more experiments with UBI because um, I think universal basic income could allow people to explore alternative paths. So I, I'm actually a very big believer in the fact that there are many different. Right. So you're right. Not everyone is that kind of like strategist, right? Like the person who is making those kinds of like higher like level decisions in a business enterprise. But guess what? Right. We have a massive shortage in tradespeople right now. Right. And I think there. Are, like interesting things happening in terms of retraining and stuff like that too. I think Dali aside, right? Like I think art is still a place where humans have a pretty special role to, right? Because I, I think of uh, Dali as kind of being similar to like synthetic diamonds, which uh, aside from what you think about the diamond trade, right? Synthetic diamonds have never really taken off a, like the same way that real diamonds have because people still value that authenticity. And I think the same exact way, like human creation is always something that we value more than what's yep. I think it is pretty interesting though that like the artists beyond, you know, the, the people that are, you know, the, you know, analog artists, like the, the best artists of the future, they're going to, are going to be the really great critical thinkers that know how to pro, you know, create the best, the best prompt within be, Dolly that is very unique. Like there, there's an element of creativity in yeah. building those prompts to get a certain output out of the AI, which you know, creates a whole nother set of types of artists, which is really, really strange. You know, we were playing around, yeah. around with Dolly in our company, in our general chat and Slack. I was like, Hey, yeah. just give me the most crazy prompt that you can think of. Yeah. And we're just like screwing around with it, but it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, you know, if you combine G PT three and Dolly two, yeah. you yeah. can build like a children's book business on autopilot yeah. all day long. Yeah. You know, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. But anyway, we'll, we'll transition to the, to the back half of the, the conversation. You know, 
you know, I started this, as I said, you know, to help as many founders, operators, teams, you know, navigate this tricky economic environment. Um, what, what's your perspective on what's going on in, in the economy? Like, how did we get here? Where are we? What does the future look like? And, and how, how much does this matter to startup founders? Yeah. Um, there's a lot I to unpack. There's a lot. There is a lot to unpack. Yeah. I think there's one thing is for sure. Right. Um, it is. It's especially clear that 2020 and 2021 were exceptional, unusual environments that nobody should plan on reverting. Um, it's part of a natural economic cycle where, I mean, you go through booms and busts. And to be clear, I think Q2 and maybe to a certain extent Q3 of 2022 have been a an alarmed reaction, maybe an overreaction, right? That we maybe will just, again, normalize a little bit from. It might be that it's just the start. We don't know yet, right? So, but I think one thing that's certain is that high-flying time, which was arguably unnatural and not healthy, has come to an end, right? Um, we've seen that in the public markets. We've seen that in late-stage financings. We've now started to see it in, like, Series A and seed-stage finance. Um, I think we are either already in a recession and just haven't called it that, or we are going to see... It. It's a very unusual recession, right? We're seeing, like, wages and the market, job like, job market not really affected... Uh, there's arguments that there's exogenous circumstances like, you know, geopolitics and, and supply chain issues that are contributing to most of the, the recession-like behaviors that we're seeing right now, like GDP uh, compression and real, real GDP compression. But but one way or the other, like, I mean, it's if you look at some of the leading indicators, you know, people are starting to get strapped for cash. Um, and that will, and, and layoffs haven't happened en masse in, in larger enterprises. They've mainly happened in like, you know, tech companies and startups. Uh, but often those are bellwethers, right? Because those companies move faster when something's going wrong, right? Whereas like large companies, they're kind of like groaning under their own weight and kind of like moving forward under their own momentum and they correct in longer time horizons. So um, it's kind of a non-answer to your question, but let me try to bring it to an actual answer, which is um, the make hay while well, the sun shines was great during 2020 and 2021. And the sun has, it's certainly setting. We don't know if it's like a an eclipse or like an actual sunset. Um, and it is going to be anywhere from a couple of months to like a year plus of pain. And um, I hope that it is not an overcorrection in the straight up like hard recession and rather just like a soft landing and a, okay, reversion to the mean of like the 2017, 2018 kind of like era, which was like a little bit more like normal, uh, but we don't know. For the, for the teams that, you know, they were riding high and then maybe they got brought down to reality pretty quickly and had to make a ton of changes. And now maybe things are stabilizing a little bit for them. Do you think it's smart to say, hey, okay, things are kind of stabilizing. You could start to you know, look forward, you know, make some investments in growth. Like, you know, we've kind of hit the bottom there. Or do you think that, you know, startups and companies really need to be thinking like, hey, it, it could go, you know, things could get worse from here. They can go down another 50% from here. Your customers and demand could continue to fall off a cliff. Um, you know, obviously there was a big reaction, but do you think you, you think it's safe waters yet? Or, or, you know, companies really need to be on the uh, defensive still? I don't think we know if it's safe waters yet. In other words, I don't think we know, which means it's not safe waters yet, <laughs> right? Um, like, I, I think that assumes certainty, predictability, and there's just so much unpredictability right now that you kind of have to assume for and plan for the worst. Um, I am, however, I don't necessarily agree with, like, blanket, like, plan for X months of runway, uh, because I think each company situation is different. I do think that every company should have a, every company should make sure that if they plan on raising more money, that they will have the metrics that make it a no-brainer, not probably can raise, but a no-brainer to raise, right? With at least nine months left, right? You have to have a clear PMF and like rockstar numbers to raise an evaluation that you think is reasonable, like 
that, lo- that might be lower than you're willing to accept with like nine months of growth. And if that's not going to happen, you'd have a backup plan of like, when would we make more drastic changes? How do we go into comp, right? To just survive until you can get to those, numbers, right? And I think the backup plan to that is like, not just to go into cockroach mode, but I don't know what the further version of that is, but to get to the point where you can, I don't know, maybe like, a, I think there's like a bacterium that can submit and survive in uh, uh, zero uh, in, in vacuum or something like that. But like, basically, how do you go into that bacterium mode so that you can basically get to cash flow breakeven or profitability, right? So in other words, I think, I, I think of it as useful uh, uh, to plan in terms of like standard deviations, right? You should like plan for once, like plan and execute according to one standard deviation, but have a contingency plan for two standard deviations and have like a second contingency plan for the three standard deviation, like three sigma situation. I mean, beyond that, like, I mean, if it goes to shit, it goes to shit, right? But like, I mean, <laughs> at least fun. planning for like 99%, like 98% of scenarios is I think a good idea. Yeah, I, th- I think m- many of the smart people that I've talked to, especially experienced people, their their advice is just, you know, have a have a point of, you know, have an opinion about these things. Like come up with a plan. Like where do you think things are going and make sure you have a plan in place for that. If it's better, it's better. If it's yeah. if it's worse, it's worse. But you can't just kind of float around and, and react right. to, to what's happening. You have to have right. a, a plan in place and, and execute against it. I think Yeah. You know, just to be very concrete and transparent about us, right? Like so we we and, and we're we tend to be pretty candid with like the team and all this stuff too. It's like okay, we are building a set of things that and we have we have some work to work work to do around messaging and, and, and positioning, as I mentioned, around like okay, what, like what is what is the one thing that we do? We're increasing. We, we thought narrowing it down to two things that we do would be better, but it turns out even that people are like, well, do you do A or B? So like okay, I guess we have to come up with one thing that we do, right? And so um, that I mean, we have a little bit of work to do before we like start going scaling. We haven't really worked the the cold emails, work the networks, work the phones, et cetera, to like get sales yet because we've been building the product and now that we just carved out the services, our identity is different. So, okay, we're going to finalize that in the next like few weeks and then go hard, right? And try to scale that. And because you're building product to make it better and better in parallel. So that over the next like four months should hopefully get us to a point in like early Q1 where we have those numbers that make a raise no greater the way that I described. If that doesn't happen, happen, then we need to think about like how do we go to comp, right? And do that for another six months. And if we still are where we are, like how do you go to bacteria right it's like it's kind of the so you have to have a, a miles set of milestones right that are because time is the only fixed quantity right so in other words you can you can make the dollar stretch but you have to work against time and so it's just okay like the deadline for us to figure out pmf is end of year right like so and having and so to your point like you gotta have a plan you gotta work backwards from what your deadline yep do you how, how granular do you get when it comes to modeling and planning like do you do you look at like a daily weekly kind of cash flow model or, or anything like that or it's false precision should you should know like within a 5% confidence interval, how much money is leaving your bank every month. We're at like two, like 280-ish burn right now, uh, 280K per month. And sometimes it's 300, sometimes it's 260. It, you know, it's, that, that's approximately the range. And we have 4 million in the bank, 14 months of runway. That's it. That's all you really need to know, right? Like anything, anything more than that, I think like, I mean, are you really going to make dramatically different decisions with like 13 months of runway versus 14? Not really. Right. Or even more like 13.8 versus 13.9. It doesn't make a difference. Right. So in other words, I think, look, I think it is almost unhealthy to look at the cash flow every day or every week or whatever it is. I think you like, again, like based on 14, you set a four month plan and then every month, maybe you reevaluate like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? I think any more than that, it just stresses you out. Yeah. And, and how are you communicating with the team? Are some of these things kind of front and center for them? Are there all hands on a weekly basis, monthly basis? How, how transparent are you internally and, and what are what are you guys focused on in, in those types of meetings? Yeah, I mean, well, 
all of this is public, right? So that, <laughs> around like, sorry, in the sense of like the, the, the kinds of like deadlines and numbers and status and things like that I'm talking about, I'm listed publicly. So certainly the team um, generally gets uh, where we're at. I mean, we're, we're kind of that, like, you know, we're It'd not- probably be an issue team. if the only way they're finding this out is they listen yeah, to the exactly. podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think everyone, like every time I've like talked to people, it's like, look, I mean, we're, we're like, we're not in a situation where we need to take drastic moves, but it's a startup. Like if things change, we'll be transparent about it, right? Uh, that's really like all- we can say because like we have a plan, here's a plan for the next four months, right? And I mean, elements of the plan are not fully set, like go to market and positioning right now, right? But we are working on them and we'll share the plan when it's ready, right? So you, so that's kind of, I think the, so I'm, by the way, not very good at this at all, right? I always um, under communicate and just like store a bunch of info in my head and people, I'll, I'll assume people will ask, but people never ask. So our chief of staff is great at this and she's actually been driving a lot of like, hey, like, I think we need to make sure the team knows we're working on a plan, even if we don't have one yet. I was like, great, let's tell them, right? Um, and so I think we, so yeah, we have weekly all hands. Uh, we uh, are experimenting more recently with like, we used to have just like a, a status report from every team. And now what we're doing is kind of like a, <clears throat> first 10 minutes is kind of like a, just read this document. We're not gonna just recite what's on the document, ask questions if you have them. And Amazon the, style. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, we had the document to start with anyway, and we just used to read through it, which kind of felt redundant, right? Like. Um, and the second 20 minutes, or sorry, the, the minutes 11 through 30, we were uh, we're now starting to basically do a deep dive into one function on a rotating basis, right? So this week's operations, next week is go to market, the week after that is product and engineering, the week after that is sort of. Yep, makes sense. Where do, where do you think abstract ops fits within the context of just the macro situation? You know, do you feel there's some tailwinds because, you know, companies are looking to kind of consolidate some of the, you know, the personnel allocated to different things and you're helping give them, you know, leverage? Do you think there's, you know, headwinds just because of, you know, oh, we don't want to spend more on, on excess tooling and technology? Where, where do you guys fit into all this in your opinion? Um, so I think when you're a company at our stage, the macro situation shouldn't matter that much. Right. Uh, I forget there was some VC who tweeted this, but I mean, I think that it was a very, I don't know, pithy slash tongue in cheek slash flippant way to put it. But I think it's spot on. It's like, hey, you just sent, showed me a slide that said you have like a hundred thousand trillion dollar market. Yeah. You're, you're telling me you really can't go and get 50 customers in the next six months. Right. Like, I mean, like that is a, an object failure of the executor, of the operator. Um, and so I think for us, I mean, yeah, does it make life a little easier or harder depending on that tailwind headwind point you're making? Yeah, totally. Right. But I think it, <clears throat> the, I think there's an argument that we're a little bit counter-cyclical, but honestly, right, it's for the reasons that you described, it's like, it's more efficient and so on and so forth, right? When people are mindful of burn. Uh, but, but you're also right that like, I mean, basically both, right? Like you're also right that people are not looking to pay for things, period, right? And people tend to be over-optimistic of like, oh, I can cut this software and just like do it myself, except it's like, well, that means you're not doing something else, right? Like you should be allocating your resource effectively, but that's anything out of there. Um, but, but I think the... But, but I do think it actually dictates, right, like what your positioning or what your go to market is depending on that macro environment. So, for example, we are shifting our focus from like a hiring focused app into like more people focused because guess what? You still have people. You might not be hiring anymore, right? Uh, and so and, and it might be that like the contracts management side of things is less focused on employment agreements and more focused on sales contracts, right? And so like you, you have to tweak, I think, the... The, the copy and the messaging that you have. And again, I will repeat, uh, we, we need <laughs> still to work on this. Still working on it. And honestly, like when I think about, like I, I like to joke, we're good at execution, bad at narrative, right? Which is, narrative is really, really important. And I recognize the value of it. It's just not one of my skill sets. And I, I, I think we're still cobbling together that skill set internally. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think like it does require that you have to like 
change the tone and the narrative a little bit to suit what the heyday of the moment is. So for example, for now, right, like being focused on remote teams is like a really good place for us to go because that is the agnostic shift we're seeing. I think people were briefly, that, that lulled a little bit as people started going back to the office, but it's clear that it's here to stay. And there are remote first teams that will always be remote first, first like that. Does the bar change for you all in terms of where you're making investments and, and, and where you're designed to grow in this type of environment? And then how do you make those decisions? Is it something you do as an executive team? Is there some sort of mental model in place? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that a very specific way, which is uh, uh, for, I think, many founders, a natural tendency is not bright, shiny object syndrome, but the excitement over new ideas, new projects, new initiatives, yep. and so on and so forth. I want to buy um, a company in like Europe right now. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> I said, I want to buy a company in Europe, and our CFO was yeah. like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's what um, our exec team is holding me accountable to. It's like, nope, reduce scope, reduce scope, reduce scope, focus, 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 cut like non-core, cut non-core, right? I think um, uh, there's great, uh, I think Johnny Ive quote on this, which is focus is not doing the thing that every fiber of your being is screaming that you have to do because it's such a good idea yep. and you're choosing not to do it because you're doing something else. It's going to be a real trade-off, like a real pain to it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and I think the same thing is true with like value. Sorry, this is a slight digression, but like, you know, people just use motherhood and apple pie values that like, you know, like excellence. And I'm like, well, who doesn't want to be excellent? I hate like you're not, yeah, you're not making any trade-offs. You know, right? you know like, Bob, Bobby Goodlot, or, um, he's yeah, yeah. Uh, form Capital and, yeah. and he was at Facebook. He, he put a, a tweet out that says like, my, my heuristic for values is there needs to be some alternate side that some other companies yes. equally you know, excited about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think um, one way to do it is stack ranking, right? Like in other words, it's like explicitly anti-values, right? So on deck did this, we actually have like an anti-value section on our like jobs page and so on and so forth. It's like, what are we not, right? Um, so for example, stability is a value that many companies would agree with, right? And we are very not stable. If you want stability, you should go somewhere else, right? We are experimenting, we're rapidly changing, like it is, it is barely controlled chaos, right? And I think you have to kind of be comfortable with that and, and be okay signing up for that. But to your point, right? Like many companies are like, okay, I want stability. Like that's what you get when you sign up here. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I think, yeah, to your point, like focus is about trade-offs, right? And it's probably one of the areas I need to grow and develop the most. I'm trying and making corrections along that path, but um, I love new like endeavors. I love like when someone on the team or me or whomever likes it, it's like, ooh, if we did this thing, it would be really powerful. We're like, yes, let's do it. And then someone else is like, no, because we have to do this other thing. Remember, we all agreed we're going to do this other thing. Do we think that's no longer better? It's like, oh. Okay. Yeah, you're right. That is more important. Uh, so yeah, it's hard. Oh, well, I, uh, last few questions. You know, you, you're at Stanford. You're at BCG. You know, you, you have a. I'm sure you have a pretty big network of people in, in the startup world. What are what are some of your s smartest friends doing right now? Are they staying at their corporate jobs? Are they starting new companies? Are they you know becoming investors? Like, how are your friends kind of approaching these times right now? Yeah, I think um, I haven't seen a massive I think shift and. I think the reason for that is is a sad commentary, which is the fact that like those are privileged networks and privileged people don't have to make wildly different decisions in times of macroeconomic stress. You can still do the same thing you want to do, uh, which is again commentary on like I think broader socioeconomic um, strata. Uh, not seeing a ma major shift on that front. I do think that um, people are abandoning not great ideas sooner, which is good, right? Like any idea was getting funded a year ago. And now people, I've had multiple people be like, hey, we 
We, I, I even thought some of them were good ideas for words, right? But the market disagreed, right? And so they were like, hey, we talked to a bunch of users and this is what we heard. Decided it isn't going to work. We're going to take a different tack. And I'm like, kudos for listening to your customer. That's great, right? So I think the biggest change that I'm seeing is that investors and founders and so on aren't taking the flyer on things. And I do think, uh, and maybe to the extent, like this is still like risk-taking endeavors, but I do think more smart people are joining fast-growing companies rather than starting them. They're more open to that. Yep. Yeah, I, I've seen that as well. So where do you think all the money goes then? You know, if, if there's less flyers, less bets, less risks, but there's still equally you know abundant capital, does it sit on the sidelines? Does it just keep going into the winners? Like, where, where's it all going to go? It's a good question. And that's why I um, wonder about that potential soft landing. I think there's a possibility that like, I think capital has to go somewhere, right? As you're, as you're saying. And um, well, so um, there's one, uh, I'll, I'll try to answer it with a little bit of an analogy, which is, uh, you know, oil did a crazy like up and down in like 2015. I lost my shirt, like uh, doing futures ETFs, but um, uh, some of the dumber financial decisions I've made. But um, the, I realized that like, so this was the stat at the time. It's like the, oil price fell like 40 or 50% from an oversupply of 1%, right? Like the world is producing 106 billion barrels of oil and the demand is only 105 billion. That 1% delta results in 50% drop in prices. I think that's the same thing that happens in like very, very like large markets like this. It's like, you don't have to have a very big fall in like, like supply of capital to actually have valuations take a very big dive, right? And I think that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Uh, you could take 2% of the supply out of the market and that's it. It, the market's fucked. Um, so that's one. The other is, I mean, where is it going to go? I think, yeah, it probably go, like it's, it's a, it ends up being a flight to quality, right? It ends up being like, oh, cool, this company is very clearly working. Let's double down on it. And like very recently, I actually saw a couple of companies being invested at at greater than 100x ARR. And I think personally, that's like still too rich, right? I don't think that should. I don't think that should have happened in 2020, 2021. I don't think it should be happening now. Uh, and I see this at a, as, as, a, as a company that's roughly valued at 100x ARR right now. Uh, but, 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 that's, um, but that is, I think, more of a function of the fact that like, it's a lot easier to be valued at higher multiples when you have a very small denominator, right? Like very small base, because it can add a million in ARR very quickly. Like, like we, can, we can add a million in ARR and be at like 20x, right? 25x. So it's, it's like very easy to get there. Uh, but I, like, when you see mature companies trading at 100x ARR, that really scares me. Uh, because I mean, adding that next hundred million in revenue is not going to be easy. Right. Um, and so, um, we are like, we're still seeing that. And I, I don't like, I think that's why the correction hasn't fully hit because you are still seeing like the best companies. It's, it's interesting because the best companies in public markets, Twilio is trading at like Jason Lemkin tweeted this recently. Twilio is trading at like three X ARR. It's insane. Um, I think Octa's at five X ARR. Yeah, he always likes to he always likes to tweet like, oh, like Monday's worth six billion and you're yeah. worth eight billion. Like, all right, yeah. I don't well, it. here's the thing that I think he's leaving out of the equation. It's 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 an important data point to consider. But I do think growth is a really important element of that, right? Like, and to his credit, he often says, and is growing at sixty percent, and is growing at forty percent, and so on and so forth. So he does take that into account. But I do think companies that are growing four x year on year can more reasonably justify fifty x sixty x ARR because guess what? In a year they will be at 15, right? Like, and so again, I, I think that's a really important consideration to take into account. Um, I guess my my perspective is no matter what, even if you're growing like 8x, I think you should try to do 100x because like, like the next year will not be 8x by definition, right? Probably not, right? There are very few special companies that can pull that off multiple years running. But so yeah, anyway, that's my, 
What's interesting is, you know, I've I've seen some like linear regressions of, you know, correlation between valuation and different, you know, underlying factors. And all of last year and the year before was all about, oh, growth's the only thing that's correlated to valuation and multiple. Now you're starting to see the, the, you know, the R-square value is much stronger for free cash flow margins, for gross margins. And there's this kind of flippening to a focus on those underlying fundamentals being strong. And that's what's being rewarded. And, And the companies that had, you know, strength there coming into it haven't been hit nearly as much as as the high growth kind of you know hey maybe one day we'll make some money like those you know those indexes or indices are you know down 70 percent whereas you know the fundamentally stronger businesses are down maybe 25 percent or so um yeah so um, it's it's hard to make that switch though as a team and a founder if that's not what you were you know incentivized around well here yes i agree with that but i don't think i don't think it requires that much of i guess a shift in that I think every company should be optimizing for both at all points in time, right? So like maybe you were, I don't know, 60, 40. If you were optimizing for 80% growth and 20% free cash flow, then switching to 2080 is going to be really hard. But if you're starting at 60, 40, switching to 40, 60 should not be that big a shift. Um, so, I mean, I, the ones that drive me crazy are companies that just never solve their unit economics, right? And it's like, I mean, if you're at 10% gross margin, like why did you try to grow before getting that up to like 40 or 50, right? Like, um, you see, you see this sometimes in like these e-commerce businesses that some, mm-hmm. they get into like a few hundred million, but it's just clear there's no way it's ever going to turn around. You know, you look at yeah. Allbirds, you look at Warby Parker, you look at the Real Real, you look at Rent the Runway, like all these companies. If you look at the S one, there's just no. I don't see how there's any way that they turn that situation around. Yeah, and I haven't looked at each of those individually, but generally understand the sector, and I and I think I agree. And like I think the the um, I mean some some people who have actually like who are like. DTC experts, right, have actually talked about how, like, they've had a little bit of a come-to-Jesus moment about their industry overall, their sector, like, their, the thing overall. Um, I think that the the most interesting thing, I think, with DTC is that there's building your own brand can only get you so far. At some point, you run into the wall of distribution, right? Like, getting from 100 million to, like, 500 million is, like, really hard, and then you end up spending a wild amount on CAC, which makes the gross margin even worse. Right. So even if you were at like 20, 30% gross margins, which is not great, maybe you could have pulled that off if your cap was like reasonable, but like cap gets harder and harder and harder. Like I think the one um, Blue Apron was probably the worst example of this, <laughs> where I think they're, they're like cap was greater than their LTV. Yeah. Like, and it was, Somehow yeah, they were a Go- they were a Google ads arbitrage that went negative when everyone else tried to build <laughs> the same business as them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I love it. Yeah. And, and I think um, so on the valuations point overall, so, um, this is an area of like great personal interest. So wrote a very long blog post a few weeks ago about like a kind of like a different uh, multiple and mental model for valuations. Uh, so uh, oh, yeah, I, like the, I like the tool that you guys made. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, it's actually directly based on that methodology. So basically what it does is to take like, so growth compounds, right? So in other words, um, not having, so price to earnings to me doesn't make any sense. You mentioned free cash flow, right? At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is like, price over free cash flow. But obviously, if you're not generating it yet, what you want to do is work your way backwards to get to the most predictive model. The problem is working your way all the way back to revenue ignores a bunch of important factors like unit economics, right? And so in other words, but, but on the flip side, like just focusing on like EV over EBITDA or like price earnings or whatever it is, like ignores, well, okay, GNA and R&D and sales and marketing will scale, right? Like, and so unit economics are like the thing, the, the most important thing. So what we actually did was to take gross profit and apply multiple on gross profit. But then you have to factor in growth because otherwise today's gross profit is not going to be predictive of the future. It's actually what it's going to be in the future. So, and, and to your point on like people buying more growth earlier versus now, 
basically when interest rates are really low and the market is really favorable, you're willing to buy more years of growth because capital is cheap and it's a money, right? When interest rates rise, when the market is tighter, you're more conservative. So you're willing to buy, like be less predictive. You're willing to like take fewer chances. And so you're willing to account for and plan for less growth. So in other words, that compounding effect, the exponential factor of growth ends up being far less valuable today than it was then. And so as a result, like, I mean, you can actually break this down into like just literally a formula. It is like one plus DCF. Yeah, it's basically, it's a, it's a poor man's DCF. It's basically exactly what it is, right? Yeah. Or, or should we say, to be slightly more politically correct, a, a, a uh, back of the envelope DCF, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's, it's the ability to say like, okay, what are the key inputs into a DCF? It's growth rate and it's gross profit. That's it. Just use those. And the gross profit should be a compounding factor, not just like a static input. And so how, how much it compounds? Do you put it to a 4x exponent or, or sorry, times 4 exponent or, or a uh, 2? That depends on the market cycle. And so that's what the public calculator, the abstractops.com slash valuation uses. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I, I used it for fun and shared it with our CFO to, to check nice. it out. It's, it's super simple and streamlined. Does it check out? Sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Do you, do you think, you know, quick little question. Do you think a fund programmatically built around throwing inputs in there and making investments when the valuation difference is, is wide enough would do well over time? Um, or is it, or is it just a very simplistic, like, no, I, I, I think of it. Okay. So the, uh, there's still one element left to judgment and this actually gets to the early conversation coming back full circle around like software versus human decisions in like operations and, and company building, right? Basically there's still, if you look at the model, there's still one purely subjective input, which is high quality, right? Yeah. So you could end up with very different investment decisions based on if you decided a company was low quality versus high quality, right? And so I think if you were to treat all companies the same and input, like use a programmatic like trading algorithm to like invest that way, I think you would lose money probably because there's a reason that the low value companies are more valuable and high value probably higher, right? Like, uh, because for example, take Stripe or Shopify or other companies like that, right? They have always looked cheap in retrospect, right? But always expensive at the time. And I think it's, um, it's because they're a really high quality company. I wonder if there's a, you know, if with enough data inputs, you can get a heuristic for like goodwill potentially, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Brand value would be one example. Another could be, no, I think that's, that's probably right. I think, um, brand value is one. I think the nature of the business, like how infrastructure, actually one of the best predictors I think of that is probably uh, net dollar retention and negative yep. return, right? Yep. Like if you, like if people are not just not leaving, but they're growing, it's probably a really good sign of a high quality business. Uh, I mean, you look at, uh, yeah, I mean, you look at the high multiples meta by like, you know, the crowd strikes or the data dogs or the Shopify's or the stripes or the, yep. um, um, apples of the world. Yeah, they're all at 140% net dollar retention, yeah, 160%, exactly. you know, that's probably, yeah. You, so you can you also look at like in, release cadence, deployments, you know, GitHub commits, all, all those <laughs> types of things. You, you could probably figure it out. Yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. Yep. For sure. Well, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Your last question that I like to ask, and, and we could probably talk for, for hours, but you know, for if there's a founder out there listening right now or, or somebody on the exec team, whatever, and they're in a really precarious spot, you know, maybe they, they didn't plan correctly, they're running low on capital, the market that they're in is getting squeezed, whatever it might be, and their back's kind of against the wall. Maybe they're stressing out every night. What, what would be your number one piece of advice for, for that person or that team right now? You are not your company. Don't tie your identity to your work. Um, and realize that, like, I mean, ideally, hopefully, you've made better decisions to get, like, you would have made better decisions, or you, maybe you couldn't have whatever it is, but at the same time, like, I don't know, it's a job, right? Even if it's a mission, it's still a job, right? There's another one after it, right? Like, if you did the right things and treat people the right way, there will be another at bat. There'll be another shot on goal. Um, life is long, and it's a multi-term game, 
Like, so navigate the situation with, with grace, like, you know, give people lots of severance, give investors a heads up. Um, people respond to that. It pays back long term. Yeah. So I think, yeah, just don't treat it as a single turn game where you have to, yeah. So in other words, just factor that in and also don't tie up your identity to your Success. That's great. Yeah, I think sometimes when people's backs are against the wall, they'll do things out of character potentially yeah. also that, that could be really detrimental for the long term. Exactly. Awesome. Amazing. Well, it's been a ton of fun having you on. Um, you know, it, seems you, it seems you write a bit uh, on either on the Abstract Ops blog and, and some other places. What's the best place for people to interact with you or, or learn from you? <laughs> well, it makes me seem a, a, a little bit more uh, grandiose than I think of myself. Um, no, I mean, I don't know. I like I've been trying to take a little bit more to Twitter recently to share some of those things. Um, I think it's it's been uh, my wife uh, gives me shit over like how I'm like just glued to Twitter these days, and it's a newfound uh, addiction. I didn't, uh, I wasn't on much uh, more than I a year tweeted. Ago. I, I was like, do you think Twitter's a net positive or net negative? What do you, what do you think? So it feels a little above my pay grade, but I would say probably a net positive. I think um, some of the changes happening with like essentially listicles being moved into tweet storms, right? Like Buzzfeed style listicles, which drive me crazy being moved into tweet storms. Like that feels like a net negative, but I think overall, you know, people share some really fascinating like things and insights. I learn a lot every day on Twitter. It was um, really interesting kind of niche content too. Like, yeah. you know, operators in like the blue, blue collar world and stuff and small business yeah. operators and stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun. No, yeah, exactly. I think, I think uh, if you curate your list the right way, um, I mean, yeah, it's like any tool, right? Like it, you get out of what you put into it, right? So if you curate your list the right way, there's some really fascinating. 100%. Awesome. Well, people can find you on Twitter. It's great having you on. Maybe we'll have you back, uh, you know, in that 12 to 18 month period as you figure out product market fit. And... Hopefully, man. One can only hope. And uh, best of luck to everyone else, else out there doing the same random walk up the mountain. Uh, and and uh, hopefully you get to the mountaintop. We're, we're all just trying to figure it out, I think. So. Exactly. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for coming on. Likewise, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. More episodes are on the way. If you want to keep the conversation going, suggest questions, or nominate guests for future episodes, you can reach me on Twitter at Michael Martocci. Good luck and see you next time.